here again this afternoon. Appreciate you coming back for part two of our series on Revelation as we consider the connecting the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel. It may not sound like a very exciting uh, prospect for an afternoon sermon after you've all had full bellies and everything, but I, I'm going to make it as interesting as possible if you're anywhere near a nerd like I am and fulfillment of prophecy is exciting to you, then maybe you'll be able to stay awake this afternoon as we move through this. And I just want to reiterate uh, the information we're covering this month on the book of Revelation is simply scratching the surface of a tip of a very large iceberg. And what we hope to accomplish by this is not provide every single detail that we can, but to mainly give you the information you need to go and study the book of Revelation on your own. We have resources at our disposal that we use, namely the Word of God, which I hope we rely on the most of all, but also there are other books. There are things like Pat Manning's series on premillennialism, uh, Jerry McCorkle's study on the book of Revelation that we've, that we've taken advantage of. And if you have any questions about some of the resources we've been using that can help you study further, we'd be glad to give you that information as well. So as we study the book of Revelation, as Carrie talked about, it can be a very intimidating process. Part of that has to do with the fact of the sort of mysticism and drama and theater that the, the modern religion has placed on the book of Revelation. It's also a very, you know, you got to get out a shovel, you got to dig a little bit, and all that's kind of hard. But the Revelation, like all the other books in the Bible, are written to a specific group of people at a specific time about a specific circumstance that they were in. Like all books of the Bible, we can take that information, and like Carrie said, when it's in context, we know who he's writing to, what the message was. We can use that to help us better understand it, but also we can take what we know about the rest of the Bible and make application there. You know, Paul in Acts chapter 20, I believe verse 27, talked about to the elders at Ephesus how he, how he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, and we want to do that when it comes to any book of the Bible, but especially Revelation, we want to take into account the whole counsel of God, all the other books of the Bible that we can, and specifically this afternoon we're going to look at Daniel and Ezekiel. You know, Daniel used this same principle when considering the events that were going on in his life at the end of sort of the, the end of the Babylonian empire or kingdom and into the, the Persian kingdom. Daniel looked around him and saw the fulfillment of prophecy was about to happen in his own life, and he remembered the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, he said, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And so what Jeremiah is prophesying about here is the rise and the fall of Babylon, or rather Babylon coming in and taking captive the nation of Judah, and then their fall at the hands of of the next great world power. And so Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, is considering what's going on in his life and in that area of the world, and he's remembering or noticing that the prophecy that Jeremiah made is about to come to pass. And so Daniel 9, verse 1, he says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived the books of the number of years and that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's connecting these dots. Now this doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're talking about today, but what it does point out is that Daniel used this same concept that we're going to use this afternoon to determine this is what's going on. We're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. He's making these connections. 
And I hope that we can do that some with what we see in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And I want to start with Ezekiel this afternoon and understand the point of drawing the, the connection between Ezekiel and Revelation. Carrie mentioned this morning that Revelation is a, is a book that's not like a lot of other books in the Bible, but it is like Ezekiel in a lot of ways. Ezekiel uses the same kind of imagery and symbology, um, the same kind of language, and that, that's intentional, I believe, on the part of the Holy Spirit as he inspired both Ezekiel and John to write their messages. And we'll, we'll see as we look at these examples we're going to throw up on the screen here, um, the similarities with which Ezekiel described a certain situation and then with which John described a certain situation. And it's not our intent this afternoon to interpret the prophecies in either of these locations or to say that they're even talking about the same event or person necessarily. But what it does draw our attention to is the fact that when, for instance, when Ezekiel describes God in a certain way, and then we see that same thing described in the book of Revelation, we can pretty much take to the bank that John is talking about God as well. And I hope we can make that plain as we go through this. First of all, both of these men wrote while they were in exile. Ezekiel says he was among the exiles by the Cheever Canal. And John says that he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there because of his faith, and he was being basically a prisoner there on that island. And so both of these men were writers in exile as they prophesied about what God gave to them. So they had that in common as they started out. Both of these men saw a vision of four living creatures. Ezekiel 1 and 5 says, From the midst of it came a likeness of four living creatures. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 verse 6, John said that he saw this, this throne, and there was a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So we see these four living creatures that these both men... Just, and again, we're not trying, attempting to determine what these living creatures are, or what they represent, just that they're using the same uh, kind of imagery here. Both saw God's appearance like a rainbow as they prophesied. Uh, we see here in about verse 28 of Ezekiel chapter 1, there was a brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of the one speaking. So we see he hears this, this voice speaking. He sees this image of the Lord. It looks like a rainbow. Verse 3 of Revelation 4 says, He who sat there on this throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an image. So when we see Ezekiel talking about God and having this rainbow around him, and we see John talking about the same thing, we know they're both talking about God in that instance. Both of these men were in the Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 2 and 2 says, He spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And John says in Revelation 1 and 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So the Holy Spirit played a part in the vision that both of these men received as they made their prophecies. Both of these men ate scrolls, and that kind of sounds weird, but that was, again, part of the imagery of these visions. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1 through 3 says, He said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. In Revelation, John experiences a similar thing. He says, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach was made bitter. So 
A little, a little difference in the fact that John got a bitter stomach after he ate the scroll, but it tasted good, but it, I guess he gave him indigestion or whatever. I'm not really sure. Uh, but they were told to take it, and by ingesting these scrolls, of course, it's internalizing the Word of God. It's, it's making it a part of who you are and then using that to teach other people to prophesy. In the case of Ezekiel, prophesying to Israel. In the case of John, prophesying to the, to the Christian church. Both saw the sealing of God's people, a marking of God's people, if you will, um, by the marks on the forehead. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 says, The Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. So going through the city of Jerusalem, he says, You put a mark on the foreheads of who? Well, these were God's people because they sighed and they groaned over these abominations that were being committed in Jerusalem. God knows his people. He marks his people. He knows whose is his, and he's going to spare them, and he's going to be with them, as Kerry talked about, into eternity. Revelation 7, 3 says, Do not harm the earth or the sea and the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So same type of imagery. God knows his people. He's going to mark them, and eventually, eternally, they're going to be resurrected. Both of these men saw a vision, saw death by four means. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21 talked about uh, he's going to send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, pestilence. John uses those same things here in Revelation 6 and 8 about the, the pale horse and the rider whose name was Death. Uh, the four, he was sent to, excuse me, and get brought to, got tongue-tied, sorry. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And both of these men wrote of Gog and Magog, and we're not going to attempt to identify who Gog and Magog are, whether they were literal people or nations or places, just to know that Gog and Magog represent the enemies of God. And Ezekiel 38 verse 2 talks about Gog of the land of Magog. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 8 talks about Gog and Magog. It was going to gather for them to battle. Basically, they were the enemies of God. So this is just a brief, very brief overview. It may may not have seemed brief to you. I don't know. But trust me, there's a lot more where this came from when it comes to showing the imagery of Ezekiel and the imagery of Revelation, very detailed uh, comparisons you can make on these books. And just to show that if we can look at the book of Ezekiel, understand its language and, and the imagery of what Ezekiel was prophesying about, then we can take those same principles and apply them to Revelation. In some cases, we can even look at that and say, like the rainbow, oh, I know he's talking about God, because that image of, of the rainbow around God is, is something that's making a connection for me here. So as we consider that, you know, that's something that you can take. And if you're, again, if you're interested in more information on those, those connections with Ezekiel, just let me know and we can provide some resources for you. Carrie talked very briefly this morning. I'm not going to talk about it in great detail this afternoon about the fact that Daniel sealed or was ordered to seal his prophecies and John was ordered to reveal those prophecies. And, you know, he pointed it out this morning here in black and white Calibri font for us. It is very, what my brother said was kind of an anticlimactic revelation. We were expecting a little bit more than just a, a printed piece of 8 by 11 piece of paper, but it is what it is, right? Um, but Daniel sealed, John revealed. And so I'm not going to read all these verses, but notice the, the words we have highlighted here. In Daniel, you're going to see things like time of the end, many days from now. Revelation, you're going to see things that must soon take place, and the time is near. Days yet to, go, days yet to come. You're about to suffer these things, uh, the hour of trial that is coming. And then, you know, he told Daniel, for the words, uh, 
Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And here he's saying these things must soon take place. So I don't want to beat a dead horse here because Kerry talked about it, but just know that Daniel sealed and John revealed, and we're going to get into more detail of what Daniel actually did seal, why he might have sealed that, and talk about those prophecies as well. You know, as you consider the book of Daniel um, and what goes on there, a lot of times we're familiar with sort of the Bible story version of, of what we see in Daniel. We, we learned very at an early age, at least I did, the story of Daniel in the lion's den and the, the great act of faith that Daniel had in that period of time. We learned about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their great faith of, of not bowing down to the image and being cast into the fiery furnace. Those are great stories of uh, faith of men who you know, were willing to lay their lives on the line in order to do what God wanted them to do. But the prophecies we read about in Daniel are extremely important uh, sort of to the overall narrative of human history, or at least part of human history, and specifically the establishment of God's kingdom. And this is sort of accomplished, uh, for the most part, in the prophecy of the, the fall of four earthly kingdoms that Daniel, that Daniel prophesies. And, and so I want to take a look primarily at two prophecies that we find in Daniel that talk about these four earthly kingdoms and how they relate to uh, what we're going to talk about in the book of Revelation and how we can make the connection that, that Daniel, in some cases, was talking about the exact same thing that John is talking about in Revelation. So I want to start with this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel chapter 2. Carrie very briefly referenced this this morning. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. He had this dream. He wakes up the next day, and he's, he's troubled by the dream. He calls in his own magicians and whatnot to him and says, hey, I need you to interpret this dream for me. They said, okay, well, what's the dream? He's like, I don't know. You tell me. They're like, we can't do that. And he became angry and was going to kill them all. And finally, Daniel said, hey, I can do it, or God can do it through me. So Daniel comes in, and he tells the king, okay, this is what you dreamed, because he didn't remember it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, if you'll bear with me, we're going to have a few passages like this we're going to read through. I don't usually like reading long passages like this, but it's kind of necessary today, so just bear with me. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, he says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is sort of an artist's rendering of what, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He saw this great image and it had a as we've already described, the head of gold, the, the chest of silver, sort of the belly or the middle and thighs of, of bronze or brass, as the King James says, and then the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And this stone strikes the image on its feet. It breaks the feet and then breaks the whole image in pieces. It's scattered, and this stone becomes a great mountain. What, is it, what in the world does this mean? Well, Daniel is going to now interpret the dream. He's given him what the dream was. Now he's going to tell you this is what it means. Daniel chapter 2, verse 37 he says, you, O king, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he says, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, 
the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So right away, Daniel is establishing, okay, this image represents kingdoms. You, or rather your kingdom of Babylon, represent, is represented by this head of gold on this image. He says, verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Silver is inferior to gold. So there's that next kingdom. Uh, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So he talks about this kingdom that's going to come, this fourth kingdom that's strong as iron. It's going to break all these others in pieces. It's extremely strong. It's going to it's going to scatter all these other ones. So then you have, of course, the feet that are part clay, part iron, and we're going to get into what that means a little bit later. But this is, represents four earthly kingdoms. Okay, and then we've got this little stone that we're going to come back to here in a minute as well, so don't forget that. So we see Dan, what Daniel is laying out here for us, and it may seem kind of boring at first, like, okay, well, we, I mean, we can look at history and know what all these kingdoms were, and they come in, and we can name them by name, even without the scriptures, because we have human history that tells us these are the kingdoms that came in this area of the world. But it's important for us to really dig into this and understand what Daniel was, the importance of what he's trying to accomplish. And I'll just tell you right now, it comes down to this little stone hitting the feet, because that's the establishment of the kingdom of God. Before we move on to identifying these kingdoms, I want to go over another prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. This is actually Daniel's own dream or vision that he had about the same thing, and you see the color coding that we have here that kind of indicates that. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts, that's the main part of this, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. He goes on to describe what happens there. Verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. That's important. We're going to come back to that. It had one side raised up on one side. had ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told to rise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given it. In verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces. There's the word iron again that gives you an indication we're talking about the same thing. Stand what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. So as we, we're not going to read the rest of that description right now. So Daniel sees these four beasts come out, out of the ocean, or out of the sea, rather. And he, again, what does this mean? Daniel doesn't know. He doesn't just see this and automatically know. He's, he has to ask what's going on here. I don't know why I'm popping across Krispies up here, but hopefully that will straighten itself out. Um, so Daniel's like, I don't know what this means. And so he says in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So again, Daniel is seeing the same prophecy, basically, the same uh, with just a different vision of these four kingdoms that are going to arise. And so what we have to do then is determine the identities of these kingdoms. And if we can do that, that can help us. How does that help us with Revelation? Well, it helps us because if we understand what these four kingdoms are and can identify them, and then we can identify that John is talking about some of the same things Daniel talked about, 
then that helps us to better understand, oh, John was talking about this kingdom when he talked about this beast. And that's exactly what's going on as we continue in our study. So we know through history what these kingdoms are. Babylon, you know, we already, Daniel already said, you are this head of gold. He told that to Nebuchadnezzar. Medo-Persia, uh, Persia was the stronger of that. Greece, and then Rome. And then, of course, there's the kingdom of God smashing the feet of this great image and then growing into a mountain consuming the world. So we could take a look at history, and we know we can identify these kingdoms in that way, but we don't have to do that because Daniel does the work for us. And again, we've already identified Babylon. He says, you, O king, you're the head of gold. We understand that for sure. Daniel sees more detailed visions as you go into chapter 8 and the subsequent chapters. He sees a detailed prophecy of the rise and fall of the second, the third, and the fourth kingdoms. And you can trace that throughout history, and we're going to touch on that a little bit. But he identifies two, the second and the third kingdoms, by name. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. He tells us who they are. And we're going to look at that right now. The first one, the Medo-Persia. Uh, in Daniel chapter 8, he sees this detailed vision of how the, the Persian empire is going to rise. He says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal or a river. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. If you remember, we talked about that bear, the second beast, uh, that the bear had one side that was sort of raised up. This is the Medes and the Persians and their relationship. And the, the Persians were really the strong, the powerhouse of that alliance. And, and eventually it was just Persia and the Medes kind of drifted off into uh, obscurity is the word I'm looking for there. So he says in verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. The Persian Empire became a very great empire. And this is... We know it's the Persian Empire, the Medes and Persians, because he says in Daniel 8.20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. He just comes out and tells us this is who it is. So we understand that's the second kingdom. The third kingdom is Greece. In the same way, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. That means it was very obvious and probably large. Uh, he came to the ram with two horns, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was engaged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. We're obviously seeing the fall of the Persian Empire here with this ram with the two horns being broken, being cast down, losing his power. Daniel 8, 22 21, 22 tells us who the goat is. And the goat is the king of Greece. By the way, that's Alexander the Great. More on that later. And the great horn between the eyes is the first king. And for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So when Alexander died, there were four kings that rose up and took his power and divided it. So that explains what's going on there. Again, we don't have to speculate. The goat is the king of Greece. That's the third kingdom. Now, Daniel doesn't come out and name the fourth kingdom as Rome because Rome didn't exist at that time. But as we consider this, it's the only thing that makes sense, number one. But if you consider the description of the fourth kingdom, how it was a kingdom of iron and how it broke in pieces and conquered and you know, built on the power base that the others had already established, 
the, the beast that was like no other. You know, it came up and it had these, these ten horns and it was just massive, the iron teeth, it was devouring everything. Perfect description of the empire of Rome. And of course, we know that's where we're headed this, morning, this afternoon because Carrie showed us this morning that the beast in Revelation is talking about the empire of Rome. But the important, and here's the important thing about it, though. And this is another way we can make the connection. Because as we consider that both Nebuchadnezzar's dream and we consider the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7, an event happens during the time of the fourth kingdom. That's really the whole purpose of what we're even talking about or why we're even here today. Daniel 2, verse 43, As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they, so they will mix with one another in marriage. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. He's talking about the way the Roman Empire expanded in the known world and how it would set up these provinces in different areas, like in Israel and other places. But it, they would intermarry, and they weren't quite as strong. The strength of the iron was still there, but iron doesn't mix with clay. And so we're seeing here a description of sort of the Roman Empire as it continued to grow and expand. In those areas, it just wasn't quite as strong. But here's the important part. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. That was the whole point of, this, of both of these prophecies, to show the establishment of God, God's kingdom and to give a timeline for that. And to show that God was going to set up this kingdom that should never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Remember that stone that was not cut out by man's hands, but rather, that, which means it's divinely originated, right? It's from God. He's setting up this kingdom. It smashed the feet of that statue. It obliterated it. It was scattered. It wasn't to be found anywhere. And that stone grew into a big mountain that consumed the whole world. That's the kingdom of God being established and growing and consuming the world. Daniel chapter 7, on the prophecies of the beast. He's talking about the fourth beast here in chapter, excuse me, Daniel 7, verse 11. I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That's the horn that was on the fourth beast. It says, and I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him, and to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom. What's happening here? Same thing that happened over here. The fourth beast was being destroyed. We got the establishment of God's kingdom. All peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It's going to stand forever. That's why it's important. When was the church established? When was the kingdom of God established? Trevor is going to cover premillennialism and, and the idea of what the kingdom of God is. For the purposes of our study today, we're just going to assume that we all agree the kingdom of God is the church, and Jesus is the king, and has been since it was established. When did that happen? Well, it happened during the time of the Roman Empire. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You skip down to verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Jesus was born. He was raised. His ministry was done. He died, and he was resurrected, and he ascended to heaven during the time of the Roman Empire. That is not in question. Therefore, the church, or the kingdom of God, was established during the time of the Roman Empire. That makes the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay 
That makes the fourth beast the empire of Rome. Pretty straightforward. I hope that's been made clear. I want to talk a little bit about prophecy versus secular history because we've proved right now with Scripture that all these things take place. But you know, it's very interesting as you study the book of Daniel. And again, this is where it can get pretty nerdy. I believe we as Christians have a duty and a responsibility to understand all Scripture. Um, So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, if you're nerdy like me, but I really think we all have the responsibility to understand what these prophecies mean. We don't have time to go, but over just a couple this afternoon, um, and that very briefly. So I hope, again, if you have questions about some resources you can use on this, there are some smart people out there who have done the research, have gone through the history books, and show that Daniel did indeed prophesy what happened in human history. I want to take a look at the rise of Alexander the Great because this is just a really neat story when you think about it. We've already read this prophecy in Daniel 8. We're not going to read it again. But he talks about this ram. He came with two horns, uh, which had been standing on the bank of the canal. He ran at him in his powerful wrath. This is a quote from the book Greece and Rome at War. I don't have the author's name off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But it says, Beyond the Granicus River, the Persian cavalry were drawn up in line uh, backed by a phalanx of Greek mercenaries. In the true Theban style, Alexander had strengthened one wing, which he had himself. The opening attack came from this wing. At the head of the companion cavalry, he charged across the river, smashed through the lighter-armed Persian horsemen. The Persian cavalry broke and fled, leaving the Greek mercenaries to their fate. So we're seeing the description of what's going on over here in Daniel, this, this ram, which represents Persia, standing by a canal or a river, this goat coming across the river and smashing it and breaking its horns and conquering it. And then over here, we're seeing the actual battle tactics that Alexander used when he attacked the Persian Empire. How he came across this river and he led the attack himself and he smashed them and they, they were broken. And we're seeing history play out just as we see prophesied in the book of Daniel. An interesting side note about Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel, he was actually given or shown a copy of the book of Daniel as he was beginning his conquest. And we read a quote here from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 11, chapter 8. Uh, he says, when the book of Daniel was showed him, speaking of Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. Can you imagine, here's Alexander the Great, establishing his kingdom, his empire, and somebody says, hey, check this out. Here's the book of Daniel. And there's a prophecy in here about a Greek that's going to destroy Persia. Alexander's like, cool, that's me. I'm going to go do that. You know, it's, it's really fascinating to me. Maybe y'all don't find it fascinating. I don't know, but I do. And I find it extremely faith-building uh, to see God's word and his prophecy played out in history. Here we see the fall of Alexander the Great. Daniel 8 and 8, the goat became exceeding great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. So Dan, uh, we see the, the big horn that, that said was the first king of Greece. That was Alexander. That horn was broken. Four horns came up in its place. Those are the four kings that basically assumed command after Alexander died. Here we have a sort of a long thing about Alexander and his campaign, how he got all the way to Russia through the known world. And at the end, two short later, years later, he was dead. He was not quite 33. So he accomplished a lot in his time, but he died young. And then his power went to somebody else. So there's a, we have resources that have pages and pages and pages of 
Specifically, the rise and fall of Greece is particularly interesting with all the different uh, kings. You have Ptolemy 1, 2, and 3 or whatever and all those guys. They did horrible, horrible things to God's people. And we see that play out through both the prophecies in Daniel and secular history. But we don't have time to cover that today. I want to close this afternoon by talking about, uh, as brief as I can, the, the ten horned beasts that we find in Daniel and Revelation. And, and this is important because if we can connect these ten horned beasts to each other and, and determine that they are the same, in fact, the same beast, referring to the same kingdom, if we can do that, then we can show that John is indeed talking about the same thing that Daniel was talking about. You'll look through the Bible, you will not find two other books of the Bible that contain descriptions of a ten-horned beast. Only in Daniel and in Revelation will you find that. And so right off the bat, we have a huge clue and key to understanding they're probably talking about the same thing. So let's compare uh, these two beasts that we find both in Daniel and Revelation. Number one, both were to say great or blasphemous words. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 20, we talked about the ten horns and there was a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. Revelation 13, 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. If you read actually the King James Version, this is the ESV, the King James Version will say they both said great things, and Revelation adds blasphemous to it. So we see that sort of the, the same concept of the, these beasts had a, had a mouth that was uttering great or blasphemous things against God. Both originated from the sea, Daniel 3, and 7 and 3, Four great beasts came up out of the sea. Revelation 13.1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Ten horns, seven heads, so there's that. They both originated from the sea. Carrie talked about this briefly this morning. Both linked the beast to a lion, a bear, and a leopard. I really like this one because we're seeing sort of the reverse order with these animals. We see the four beasts, but like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, and then the fourth beast that was terrifying and dreadful. Well, then John sees first the beast coming out of the sea with ten horns, and it says the beast was like a leopard, uh, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion. We're seeing the reverse order here, which I think is indicative of the fact that Daniel was seeing into the future. He was seeing the progression from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and now he's seeing Rome, Greek, or excuse me, Rome, Greece, Medo-Persia, Babylon in the reverse order. And that's a really cool, I think, imagery in showing that we're talking about the same thing here. Both were very powerful, Daniel 7 and 7, talking about how that beast was exceedingly strong, great iron teeth, it devoured and broken pieces. Revelation 13, 7, it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So a very powerful nation. Both would battle the saints. Daniel 7, 25, you shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, they shall be given into his hand. Revelation 13, 7 says also it was allowed to make war on the saints, to conquer them, and authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. So God allowed the empire of Rome to make war on the saints and to persecute them for a short time. But both of these beasts would fall. Daniel chapter 7, verse 11, I looked and because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body devoured and given over to be burned with fire. So this beast that Daniel saw was eventually destroyed. Revelation 19, verse 20, John talks about how his beast how it was captured with the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So both of these beasts were destroyed in the end. 
And of course, we see, I say both of these beasts. What we're really talking about is the same beast who was written about twice. Both would fall. <clears throat> and the final thing I want to mention this afternoon is that both would end. Both of these kingdoms, which is really the same kingdom, would end with God's kingdom surviving. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. We've already read this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And in Revelation 11 and 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. If you don't get anything else of what I've talked about this afternoon, please get this. This is the story of the book of Revelation. This is what it's all about. Carrie talked about it this morning. It's about overcoming, God's people overcoming, God's kingdom enduring, going through hard times, going through persecution, wondering when is this ever going to end? But God says his kingdom will last forever. Let me ask you this question. Where is the kingdom of Babylon in this day and age? There are prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah that talk about how Babylon's going to fall and never rise again, and it never has. People have tried to, to build on the ruins of Babylon, and it's never come to anything. Even Saddam Hussein tried it. He's going to make his own little Babylon Disneyland or whatever. It never happened because God said it wouldn't happen. Where's the kingdom of Babylon today? Where's the kingdom of Persia? Where's the kingdom of Greece? Where's the empire of Rome? They're all gone. They're no longer in existence. That stone came out of heaven. My clicker stopped working on my very last slide. <laughs> that stone came out of heaven and smashed that image, and it was broken into pieces and destroyed, and it was scattered. There it is. Those kingdoms don't exist anymore. Guess which kingdom does? The kingdom of God. And guess which kingdom will last into eternity? It's not the United States of America. This earth lasts long enough, guess what's going to happen to the United States? It's going to fall. Some people think it's happening right now. I don't know. Who cares about the United States when you're a citizen of God's kingdom? It's going to last until this world ends, and it's going to last into eternity. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Don't you want to serve a God who established a kingdom that will never be destroyed that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the price. He shed his blood and bought our redemption so that we can become part of his family and serve in his kingdom. And if you've never been obedient to the gospel, do that today. Give your life to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Be buried with him in baptism and begin to serve in his kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will last into eternity. If you want to do that today, if you need the prayers of the church, please come as we stand and sing.